We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. American Warrior Radio broadcasts for the Silencer Central Studios. Begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if only a silencer is legal in your state. Then work with their experts to find the right suppressor for your needs. They'll complete the paperwork and then ship it right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. American Warrior Radio is proud to be partnering with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society to further their mission to honor, preserve, and teach the legacy or heroism of extraordinary achievement in flight for which the DFC is awarded. You can learn more by visiting dfcsociety.org. During World War II, heavy bomber crews were required to complete 25 or 35 missions, depending on what period you're in, before they were rotated to another silent. Imagine flying 1,000 combat missions. That's the equivalent to 41 24-hour days in combat. Even in the high pace of modern combat, this milestone is still pretty rare and those who achieved it belong to a rather exclusive club. Most of those members are pilots. Today, we're going to talk to someone who flew a thousand combat missions looking out the rear of the aircraft. One of those missions earned him the Distinguished Flying Cross. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. Master Sergeant Jim Lopez, United States Air Force, retired. So, uh, Jim, you grew up large family. You actually grew up working together in the fields alongside your family back in the day when that was something that was just pretty common. Oh, yeah, that was back in the 50s, uh, late 40s. We uh, we all went out as a family out. And now there was no child protective laws then, so we just went and did a family thing. Now, I don't know if it was a family tradition or if just sort of what, what you did in the, the Lopez family. You and, if I get this right, all six of your brothers served in the military. What was your particular motivation for, for joining up? Well, in 1953, my brother next to me got wounded in uh, Korea. And so I decided I wanted to sign up. So in 54, I was known enough to go in 53. In 54, I signed up for the Marine Corps. And I had my oldest brother serving the Seabees. He was in the World War II in the Philippines. My next brother, Ernest, uh, he was in the Air Force. He didn't uh, do any combat duty. It was peacetime. And so did my brother, Manuel. Uh, and then my brother, Felix, went in and he got wounded. And I went in in 54, served three years in the Marine Corps, and then transferred to the Air Force. And was that because you wanted to fly? Yeah, I wanted to fly, but in the Marine Corps, I was a BAR man at Pendleton, and I was on quad 50s and M42s at 29 Palms. And I knew my chances of flying the Marine Corps were practically nil, so I wanted to go in. I talked to a recruiter in the Air Force, and he said, yeah, the chances are good that you can fly here. So I went to the Air Force. Now, you, while you didn't think about being a loadmaster initially, Jim, your, your ambition was to be a photographer. Well, I believe it or not, I had a scholarship to Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. And I thought about, well, if I go and I start my business, I'm going to get recruited and I'm going to miss on two or three years or whatever of the service. So I decided to get my service out of the way. And 23 years later, I found the exit door. <laughs> <laughs> or in this case, the exit ramp. Well, that's what it was. I started out when I went through basic training. I, it was a modified basic training because I was prior service. And they sent me to Wright Patterson Air Force Base as an editorial specialist. And we used to do the Air Force News Review, which is a uh, newsreel thing that was always taught, was showed at the commander's calls. 
and we had to identify everybody from a full colonel on up. So we had a big library. We had uh, a lot of that. It was really a fantastic operation at Wright-Patterson. In fact, any of the movie theaters that uh, a movie uh, companies want to make a movie on war and uh, the portrayal aircraft would come over and we'd show them strips of whether it was Korea, World War II, or whatever it was. And we had soundtracks for every aircraft and also so it was quite an experience. But that didn't last long because they turned over to civilians and they sent me to Palm Beach, Florida. Well, I was over there with the 1370 photo mapping group. We were doing aerial photo. And why did that not last? You know, sometimes the, the department, uh, if, it's, if it's not a large department, they will source it up to the civilians to do that work, and they'll use those for other other uh, jobs and whatnot. After I went to uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, I was there uh, pretty close to a year, and they sent me to Keflavik, Iceland. And in Iceland, I was just a photo... I did some, some flying because I'd have to go and photograph some streams and stuff. And I also went out on a top-secret mission at that time on a helicopter out over the ocean, and it was snowing and uh, really crazy. And I thought, you know, uh, we went over a submarine. I thought maybe a, a captured uh, Soviet Union submarine went up. But I didn't find out about it until years later. I seen my pictures in uh, in Life magazine, and it was when Captain Anderson... Uh, took the Nautilus underneath the North Pole for a submarine to do that. And when they brought him up, they took him to Washington, D.C. to decorate him. But uh, sometimes you work on these projects, and you, you can't say anything about them, you don't know anything about them, you know, and next you know they're declassified, and you, you see them published. So, But uh, you never get credit for those things because they're either uh, United States Air Force photos or something pertaining to government. Well, yeah, but it's got to be pretty cool to see your photo in Life magazine. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's. I mean, how many people get that opportunity? I have been very, very blessed. The good Lord has has really uh, taken care of me and 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 just give me tons and tons of blessings. Jim, when you switched, did you know what a loadmaster was? <laughs> no, we honestly you know. After I came back from Iceland, I went over to um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base in California, Northern California. And I was there for a while, and then they sent me up to Denver, Colorado, to teach color photography because Eastman Kodak had just released to the Air Force process of doing color printing. So I went up there, and I talked for about six months, and I came back to Travis, and it was like trying to find some place to put me. And finally, I got orders to go to San Antonio as a, a military uh, academics and drill instructor. So I spent three and a half years there. When I got through with that assignment, they said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I'd like to go back to aerial photo. And they said, well, it's a closed field right now, but we've got to fly. We can send you to Roadmaster. And I said, fine. So they sent me to Langley, Virginia. I qualified in the C-130 and stayed there, there on the C-130s until 1968. Not necessarily at Langley, but with the C-130s until 1968. Now, did you just work on C-130s or were you ever on something bigger like a C-5 or... Oh, yeah, that came later on in my career. Um, in the, like I said, in C-130s, I was there from 1964 to 1968. And then I came back from Vietnam and went to Travis Air Force Base, and I was sent there as an initial cadre for the C-5. C-5 was just getting completed. And so I went to Travis, and uh, C-5 wasn't ready for us to be operational yet, so I qualified as the loadmaster and flight examiner on the C-141. And then later on, transitioned over to 22nd uh, Military Airlift Squadron. 
and up to on C5 until I retired. Now, Jim, we've got just about two minutes left where we have to take our first break. Can you explain in civilian terms what the role of a loadmaster is? Yeah, he, he goes ahead and computes the loads on the aircraft. An aircraft has got to do a lot with weight and balance. You've got a fulcrum that you have to balance that aircraft so it'll fly properly. You can't be nose-heavy and you can't be tail-heavy. So you've got to, you've got, there's so many inches in that area that you've got to be able to balance that aircraft. And so we forgot how the load goes on there and where it's going to go, and then we compute all the data and give that to the uh, to the pilot, and they go in and they compute all of their takeoff data and everything else. So it's, you know, there's no insignificant roles in on aircraft crew people. Now, are you involved in actually packing the pallets, or just it's not your responsibility until it comes in the back of the plane? Yeah, I did go up to the rigging school at Fort Lee, Virginia. And uh, got see the you know how to pack and stuff because we use a large uh, G12 uh, parachutes and stuff for depending on the cargo and and you know I mean just various different size parachutes we use for various cargo. I mean you can throw something out of the plane as small as a shoebox and something as big as a plane as a uh, 16 foot pellet. So everything varies, but uh, I didn't have to do uh, the rigging and stuff. Riggers do that at the aerial forts. They just bring it on. We inspect the load, inspect the suits and stuff on there. Just tell them what, in what order we want the aircraft loaded. And then secure it and do the paperwork. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Jim Lopez, part of our partnership with Distinguished Flying Cross Society. We'll be back with more in just a second. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Vila Garcia. As part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, we're very pleased to be talking today with Master Sergeant Jim Lopez. Master Sergeant Lopez spent most of his career as a loadmaster, and he just explained what that was about. Basically, he's working the, the rear of the aircraft versus being up in the in the pilot seat. Jim, we're going to talk mostly about Vietnam today, but you shared something with me that I found very interesting as well. October 6th through 25, 1973, the Yom Kippur War, which was between Israel and a coalition of Arab countries led by Egypt and Syria. As odd as it sounds, you played a role in that war as well. Yeah, we um, we flew from California with uh, the large tanks that uh, Israel needed. They were really in dire needs over there. They were running out of ammunition and everything else. So we'd load up here, and we would fly directly from here to Tel Aviv. Uh, doing aerial in-flight uh, refueling. And uh, once we get there, we just go in, and the tanks were ready for operation. They would roll right off the aircraft, right off to the front lines. So uh, later on in, in the years, I was in Fresno, and I was at some event, I don't remember what it was, but I ran across a veteran from the IDF. And he was talking to my young couple, and I said, yeah, I was there in October 73, and he said, Man, if it wasn't for you guys, he said, we would have never survived. You know, he said, we were down to our skivvies, honestly. He said, we just didn't know which way to turn. He said, you guys showed up with the equipment and gave us the life to go ahead and continue on. You know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I served a lot of time in Vietnam, and I've served all over the, the world, actually, through embassy flights also. But I've never met a country that was so appreciative of our help as the Israel. 
I mean, we got letters from the school kids thanking us for, for helping them. While we were there, they had an airline stewardess to come over and give us coffee and pastries and stuff like that. I mean, it was just, it was, it was just overwhelming. I mean, you know, and this was after Vietnam and in Vietnam, we never got thanked for any coming back, but we sure got a lot of blessings, a lot of thanks from the Israel kids and other people over there. And it was very much appreciated. Jim, have you ever stepped back and thought in the context of everything you've done all across the globe to help other people to retain their democracy and your role in that? Well, you know, that's our mission. I mean, we want to preserve democracy. I mean, and look, look what happened to Hong Kong. They were very uh, uh, democratic. They had their freedoms. And the British turned it over to China and with a guarantee that they're going to maintain their freedoms. And that lasted about as long as a, as a king-size cigarette would last, I guess. You know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, those people have no rights. And, and I want to tell you something. I've traveled all over this place and whatnot, and I've gone to a lot of countries that have a lot of poverty. I've, I've, I, I spoke nine languages because I, every country I went to, I tried to learn the customs and courtesies and get to know the people. Nobody, but nobody loves America like the people that have never experienced the freedoms and liberties that we have in this country. And yet, we have our own people that don't want to fly the American flag in the classroom. They don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, in World War II, when I was in school, every morning, the whole class went out there to the flagpole and we pledged allegiance. Mm-hmm. My teacher had a, a husband that was in a paratroopers, and he got shot down after he bailed out. The Germans opened up on him with their fighters, and they, they killed him. Well, they sent her his parachute, and she let the blood stays one, and she talked about him. And, I mean, we were so in love with our country, and we wanted to really just help everybody else, you know, uh, see the, the values and liberties, the, the freedoms that we have in this country. And so I'm never, I, you know, I don't care what they say about we're a bunch of baby killers and we're a bunch of this and a bunch of that warmers. We try and help every country to preserve any freedom that they have. And there's times that we do accomplish. I mean, look at Japan and Germany, our two main, main rivals in the Second World War. And look how prosperous and stuff they are in democracy now. You know, I mean, that should open up the doors. I, I, I was a district commander here for the Veterans of Foreign Wars. I have a lot of Korean veterans here. And somebody printed a real nice book from Korea thanking our troops. And I just happened to get some cases of them, and I, I handed them out to the Korean War veterans. There's a picture on it that really struck me. It's an aerial photo of North and South Korea. And North Korea's got maybe about a dozen lights that you can see in that country. And South Korea looks like a Christmas tree. I mean, the difference between communism and having the freedoms and liberties and that to, to produce and, and do what you want just is so... I, I don't know how to get it across to these people. I, I urge all of my veterans when I was district commander. I had 10 VFW posts under my command here in Kern County. And I used to urge them every November, veterans, go out there and talk to the schools. Talk about patriotism. Talk about what it means I mean, I told them, don't go out there and say anything gory you've seen during combat or anything else. That's not what we need. We need to let them know that we fight to try and help these people preserve their freedoms and liberties that they so much deserve. I I had a a girl come from Da Nang after the war and spent a couple of years with us here. And she graduated from high school here. I told her, okay, Anne, I'm going to take you back to the airport and I'll ship you back. And she said, I'm not going back. And I said, Mm. you're going to get me in trouble. 
She says, I've already enrolled in a college in Orange County. And I said, how'd you do that? I mean, these, these people are smart. And they're very, uh, I mean, they're, they're goal seekers. And so she did. She stayed here and went to college. And I'm still in communications with her in Vietnam. And uh, I mean, just a wonderful person, you yes. know. Uh, so I just feel so good when we are able to do something for somebody to help them keep their values that they that they have in their heart of what it would really mean to be a German citizen, Japanese, Australian, whatever you want to be, and still be able to have liberties to accomplish what your goals are. Well, you're you're spot on. I like you. I've I've traveled quite a bit and. If I could be king for a day, Jim, I'd require every American young person to spend a couple of years overseas somewhere, anywhere, just so they gain appreciation. Okay. I mean, they, don't, they, they talk about being poor here in the States. The poorest person here in this country would live like a king in some of those areas. And they don't realize it. I mean, they, they're just so subservient to being given everything. You know, I still like what President Kennedy said. Ask not what America can do for you. Ask what you can do for America. Mm-hmm. That is so profound and it's so lost. I just can't understand how these people here can think the way they do it. I mean, I, I've got friends that are retired Superior Court judges, and they've got the brain of a mushroom. You know, I mean, they just tell them, look, take a look what's happening to our country. I had to speak I had to speak to our, my church's a men's group, and they asked me to give a talk, and I tried to figure out what I was going to talk about, and I, I decided to talk about how my Savior has really been active in my life and, and saved me from a lot of the things that would have happened to me. And I said, and these are not coincidences. I said, they, you don't think about them day to day, but when you think back and start thinking, you know, somebody was looking over my shoulder. Well, I feel the same way with all these people. I mean, I told them, I said, you know, I see this country going to hell in a handbasket, pardon my language, but Christianity has just gone down the tubes. I mean, I, when I'm research this paper, I run across uh, Jeopardy, which is a very intelligent, uh, you know, uh, program for seeking intelligence. The three main contestants were asked a question, can you name the first sentence of the Lord's Prayer? And none of them could wow. do it. Jim, I tell you what, let's, we got to take another break here. And I, I, I agree with you. One of the oddest interviews I had ever had, sir, was with a British citizen who, in a British accent, was telling to me that... Uh, you know, America is the last bastion of, of freedom on the planet, so I couldn't agree with you more. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your time in Vietnam, Jim, and in particular the Battle of Khe Song, which was the uh, one of the days in that battle, so the, the battle for which you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bueller Garcia, will be right back I'm talking with Jim Lopez. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Vila Garcia. American Warrior Radio is coming to you from the Silencer Central studios. You can begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will then work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs. They'll complete all the paperwork for you and then ship it right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. We're talking with Master Sergeant Jim Lopez, who is a part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. You can learn more. Visit DFC Society. Org. Jim, we're going to talk a little bit about your time in Vietnam. What squadron did you fly with, and, and where, did you, were you actually based out of one location, Saigon, or were you moving all over the country? No, actually, um, in 1965, right after we had taken the 82nd Airborne, uh, the competing 82nd Airborne in Dominican Republic, when they were having a revolution or something like that, 
we came back to the States, and next thing you know, we were ordered to go to the Philippines. So they shipped three flight squadrons and two maintenance outfits to Clarkville and Mactan. Well, that was just kind of like a temporary quarters because once we got there, we would go in and prep and everything else and head for Vietnam. We first got to Natrang and flew out of there for, I guess, maybe a couple of months before they moved us over to Saigon, Tonsonut. But we were flying, uh, I'd say we fly like maybe a couple of weeks there and come home for a few days and go back and fly a couple of weeks. So our missions, we had no missions at all in the Philippines. All our missions were in Vietnam. So in 1965, we started flying in Vietnam, and uh, all of us being new, we had to first of all fly around the country and learn about where the hazards are and whatnot. And of course, they'd always brief you on any aircraft placements, but that didn't make any sense because they were mobile. So they could be in one quadrant one day and they'd be in another quadrant the next day. So anyway, you know, you, when you get into an area like that, your total concentration comes in, we're one team. I mean... When you fly with the same guys and go through the same dangers and whatnot, you become very, very close. In, class, in fact, with everybody. So we uh, went ahead and took a look at a lot of the stuff that we're doing, what we're going to be hauling, and everything else. And, and you haul anything from rice to cannons. I mean, just a variety of stuff, whatever somebody needed. At first, we had no frag orders. We would take up and go from, like, say, Natrang to Da Nang. Da Nang would have some for Play Cool. We'd take it to Play Cool. Play Cool had some for Camera. We'd take it to Camera. And we'd fly our day that way, and when we are done, we'd just go back to, to the base camp. So later on, they started dragging us down as we had a specific, you know, mission going to so-and-so and so-and-so and doing so-and-so. So that worked out a little bit better. The first major one we had was uh, with 100, 173rd Air Brigade. They went over in 65 also, and they were based out of Benoit. But at the time we were in contact with them, they were in Dock 2, and um, that... Uh, yeah, I think they're the only airborne unit that ever, ever parachuted in. But uh, they were in Ducto, and we were there resupplying them, and we were there with them for about two or three days. And I'll never forget that we're in the ground. It was raining like hell. And the troops, of course, I told them, I said, yeah, you guys can get underneath the, the wings and whatnot. And uh, I showed them how to make sternal stoves out of JP-4 and, and, and whatnot so they can eat up the rations. And some of them slept in the cargo compartment and whatnot. <laughs> One day... Charlie's overrunning the base camp, so we jumped on the aircraft, and we did a no-flap takeoff from an assault strip. And I'll tell you one thing. You start falling in love with that C-130 as soon as you see what its capability is. I mean, no-flap, and the pony was saying, I can't get this sucker to get up. I can't get it to get up. And Copa said, we have no flaps. <laughs> so we we trimmed the top of some trees up there, and we made it out. But those are, I mean, those are exciting. You know, I'll tell you one thing, Ben. I don't know about the rest of them. I never got scared during the missions and during the hot stuff until after it was over. That's when the adrenaline kicked in. Because you're too busy doing stuff and staying busy to stay alive to think about getting scared. Now, we do have a few guys that have done that. I know we were in one mission. We were, we were making airdrops, and they were getting a lot of ground fire, and you could see the bullets come in through the fuselage and whatnot. And this guy, I'll call him Charlie. I turn around, I said, Charlie, we, uh, I need your help. And I turn around, and he's over by the bulkhead. I don't want to get shot. I don't want to get shot. I said, get on over. I mean, you've got a mission to do. You've got to do it. And so he came on, and we finally did it. And I told him, I said, you know what, I said, you couldn't have been any more scared than I am. But if we don't clear this cargo and get out of here, and you're carrying ammunition, and he's in around into that ammunition and started, we're all going to buy the farm. 
I said, you got to do what's got to be done. So anyway, that was that was my first experience under really uh, uh, hostile uh, conditions. Jim, if, if you'll bear with me, let me just read something here to our listeners. The President of the United States takes great pleasure in presenting the Distinguished Flying Cross to Staff Sergeant James Lopez for extraordinary achievement while participating in aero flight as a loadmaster on a C-130 at Khe Sanh, Republic of Vietnam, on 17 February 1968. On that date, while flying an aerial resupply mission of friendly forces, Sergeant Lopez prepared the critically needed cargo so well and worked in such close coordination with his fellow crew members that the supplies were successfully airdropped onto the drop zone despite the influence of low ceilings, hazardous terrain, and hostile ground fire. The professional competence, aerial skill, and devotion to duty displayed by Sergeant Lopez reflect great credit upon himself for the United States Air Force. Jim, that was involved during the Battle of Kaesong, which if people read the history know that was the 21st of January through 9th of July, 1968, 6,000 Marines and some South Vietnamese forces against an estimated 20,000 communist troops. It was estimated they needed about 185 tons of supplies per day just to stay alive. And you and your crew, that was your job. They called, you halt. Yeah, well, we flew many missions in the, in the, in the Kaesong. One time, uh, they motored their ammo dump, which blew up all their ammunition. And they were in dire needs. And, um, we would come in the final, make the turning going into to land, and they'd open up on us from the ground. And then once we were in the ground, they'd open up with mortars, and we became known as mortar magnets. Well, we lost 55 C-130s in Vietnam, and most of those, you know, I mean, I've seen them just remnants of planes on the side of the runway where they got hit by mortars once they got down. So we started developing LAPE system, that's parachute aerial delivery system, and so they put it in, instead of having the, the metal platforms, which you usually call cargo on, we put expendable wooden platforms in there that were long. And you would fly like you're coming in to land, and you fly right over the runway, almost touching down. We'd open up the back door, put our, our, our G-11 chute in a reef condition, which means that it's kind of closed. It's only like a drag chute. And then when we went right over the runway, we'd pop the button. It would, we would it cut the cord. And the chute would open up the full extension, and it would drag that platform completely out of the back of the aircraft, and it would skid on the runway, and the Marines would go out there with, with a forklift and pick it up. Now, it sounds like a very simple process, but we lost an aircraft because one time when the chute opened up, it started pulling the cargo out, and it got stuck in the back of the plane, and the plane went down because, I mean, you can't fly with your tail heavy, and especially when you're at a low speed where you're just, like, going to make a touch and go. So it's, it, I mean, every job that you had, and I'll tell you one thing, I, as a flight examiner, I've been a flight examiner on, on 130 C5s, 141s, and we administer them one no-notice flight examination a year, and one is due on their birthday. So they always know that during their birthday, they're going to get a flight evaluation. But I will never pass anybody that is insufficient in what I call 714 emergency procedures and stuff because that's what keeps them alive. If you know that, and you can know it by book, because you, in your emergency, you haven't got time to open up a book and start reading. Mm-hmm. So every every crew position in that aircraft is vital. And one time or another, I mean, it's, it's not just one. I can be honest with you, I had a colonel, terrific pilot, and every one of us got a chance to get stick time. In other words, fly. I see. Because if something happened to the, to the pilots, we're dead in the water. Oh, what, you know, I mean, sure, I guess regulation, but so there's a lot of things during war. Right. So every one of us got a chance to get out there, and it was really terrific. I mean, we'd play games. You know, Colonel, tell me, put your fingers on a yoke, the ball of your, your fingers on the yoke, and trim it till you feel just a little bit of pressure. 
and so I'd be yeah, take hitting two seven zero, and I'm hitting two seven zero, and the aircraft veering to the right. And so I corrected, and it's veering to the left. I turned back and look, and the engineer started to beat off valves on one and two, turned off on on one and three, and the plane is going back and forth, right and left. And I mean, those are. I mean, it, it's all a learning process, but it's 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 you know, and everything in war is not doom and gloom. I, I hate to interrupt here, but we've got to take another break here, and I just want to share that uh, Ken Rogers was one of those Marines there on the ground. He produced a documentary about the Battle of Quezon, and he says that you saved his bacon. So uh, congratulations. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking to Master Sergeant Jim Lopez. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. as part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. Today we're talking with Master Sergeant Jim Lopez. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for one particularly hairy mission. Well, they're probably all pretty hairy, Jim, but uh, the citation cites uh, one mission on 17th February 1968 during the Battle of, of Quezon. Jim, you talked about how part of the reason you developed the way of deploying the cargo out of the back of the plane without actually stopping was to, to avoid the mortars. But that was not the only threat there. You apparently were on a mission where your aircraft was hit by a surface-to-air missile. Yeah, that was... Um, well, every time our plane got shot up, you always got a wounded Herkiburg certificate. Where it was way pulled by, Blake uh Cameron, uh, Ashaw Valley. But on this one particular mission, we picked up gunfire, and then all of a sudden we got hit by a surface-to-air missile, knocked out eight foot of right wheel sun stabilizer, number two engine, our hydraulic systems and whatnot. So we were close to Da Nang. We were going to take the aircraft out to the ocean and ditch it by Da Nang, and they could pick us up there. But uh, MacVie said, no, if you guys can manually crank that gear down, and because we had no hydraulic system, uh, crank it down, chain it, and we'll form the runway, you bring it in. So that's what we did. We went ahead, uh, all the rest of the crew, except the other uh, pilots, went down and we started cranking those gears down. We chained them down and they formed the run when we came in. Well, it's it's a normal mission and until you get off the plane and go and take a look at the damage. And then all of a sudden my arms and legs started shaking like crazy. And a flight surgeon would meet us sometimes and, and give us these miniature bottles of booze. I took three little scotches down in a second, and I told him, it won't stop me. He said, it's adrenaline rush. It'll stop. But, yeah, when I'm looking at the back of the plane and how much that tail was missing and stuff like that, and, you know, you can only attribute that uh, to the good Lord. I mean, kind of so many things happened to me that I, yeah, I, I can I can relate to that. Uh, I mean, not every mission. I, you expect to get good glove fire. You never know if you're going to get it or not, but you do expect it. So, like I said, when you and when you get an intelligence briefing in the morning, and tell you where the gun placements are. But like I said, those squadrons, they're mobile, so they can move their gun placements anywhere they want. So we just expected it, and if we didn't get it, thank God if we did, well, you know, we made it. You shared a story in an interview I saw with you where even in Saigon, I think it was, the, the barber, the base barber who was, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, a, yeah. a local, 
was caught up on the hangar directing artillery in against you. Yeah, we'd get we'd get the, the morning uh, well, urination points <laughs> to, just to put it bluntly. Yeah, they they mortar tons of note in the mornings, and one day they caught the base barber who was Vietnamese up on top of the hangar calling in the artillery, not telling where you know where to move the artillery to and where to you know send it. So you never know. I mean, you know that that's one of the things that. The Afghan people and the Iraqi people really learned how to appreciate what the, the, the honor that we have for them because when you're facing, in World War II, you're facing uniformed armies. In Vietnam, you could be next to a guy at the bar and he'd be as Viet Cong as you can get, and you don't know that. That's why a lot of us, if if you ever see Vietnam veterans walk into a restaurant or not, you'll see that they never sit with their back to the front door or the front windows. They'll always sit facing it. It's just a habit we got into because they started, they'd break the window, throwing a grenade. They started putting chicken wire over. But that's that's something that, and even my wife, I mean, anytime we walk there, she knows I will not sit with my back to the front window or to the front door. But those are things you just acquire, you know, for survival. You you, you fight these guys that, that are in civilian clothes, and they call us baby killers. But you know what? When you see a 10-year-old kid fully armed with explosives approaching your platoon, and they tell him to stop, and they tell him to stop, even the interpreters tell him what the dangers are, and he doesn't. There's no recourse. I mean, you're either going to lose 10, 15 of your people, or you're going to lose one child. Tim, you talk about a higher power. There was at least three separate occasions in your service where I guess that's the only way to explain it. We've got just a, a few minutes left, but tell us about Don Kennel and, and Pete White, if you would. Okay, well, like I said, in the mornings, we'd have our intelligence briefing. And one morning, the colonel came in and said, Jim, are you finished for I said, yes, sir. He said, can you get somebody to take your place? He said, I want you to work on a project. And so I went out looking for somebody and happened to see Don Connell. He's a buddy of mine out of Los Angeles. And I said, hey, Don, what are you doing? He said, I'm not. He said, I'm off today. And he said, what do you need? And I said, I need somebody to take my mission. He said, I'll take it. And so he did. He don't think nothing of it because we do that for each other. Well, he never came back. And just like deja vu, about seven months later, uh, almost same thing again. Colonel came in and said, Jeremy, fly this morning. Well, I'm in intelligence briefing. He said, can you get somebody to take a place? Well, I had a buddy of mine. He's a he's a colored man out of uh, New Jersey. And we used to just, he didn't have a lot of time just cracking up and talking about home. He was getting ready to de-rose. In other words, you're going to return back to the United States. And he was in email, I think, about another 30 days. But I hadn't seen him for a while because when we're flying on the ground, when I'm on the ground, they're flying, so you don't see each other every day. I walked out there, and who do I run into? Pete White. And I said, Pete, what the hell are you doing here? I said, I thought you went home. He said, man, I ain't got nothing at home. All my friends are here. And you do. You get very close-knit. So he said, we need. And I said, well, I got a mission. I'm trying to find somebody to take my place. He said, I'll take it. He never came back. And, I mean, it's like somebody just grabbed you and, and, and tore a piece of, of your heart out of why me, Lord? I mean, why not let me take mission? And if it's my your will, I'll buy. It. I'll, I'll, I'll pay the price. But these guys had families also, and I didn't know what PTSD was at that time. In fact, I didn't know what PTSD was until after I got back from Vietnam in ten years, and I went through some horrendous times over here. And it, I mean, uh, I had two German shepherds, and they were better than any psychiatrist I have ever had. But <laughs> I can't say anything about the psychiatrists because they were great also. They're able to get stuff out of you that you keep inside that you don't want to share with anybody. But those are the kind of things that 
you know, you, you tell yourself the good Lord had to be, I mean, it can't be just a coincidence. Why those two missions, you know, that he had somebody go in my place? There was even one more, that, um, just about two minutes left, Jim, but talk, tell us about Operation Baby Airlift. Oh, yes. And the last, my last mission, well, the last mission I was going to go on is a flight examiner on C-5s. We had an Operation Baby Lift where C-5 was going to be going to Saigon and pick up a lot of the orphans and take them to the Philippines. Well, my son's birthday is April the 4th. And so I told my wife, well, I'm, I'm leaving on the 2nd. And so she said, you haven't been here for our son's birthday for quite some time. Because every time the phone rings, you find yourself going to Europe, Africa, or somewhere. Anyway, I went to the commander, and I said, Commander, I said, I'm on, I'm on jump orders. I said, I can fly anything from Little Rock, Arkansas, through the Pacific Ocean. And I said, can I stay home for my son's birthday? And then I'll just hop planes until I get up with the crew. And I had three crew members that needed a flight evaluation. And so he said, sure. Well, I went home. On April the 3rd, I get a call. Jim, pack your bags. You're heading for Vietnam. C-5 just went down. That was a C-5 that I was supposed to be on. And all three of the crew members had perished on that one. I would have been with them because I had been in administrative flight evaluation club. And again, so I kind of come, make a long story short, I never was here for my son's birthday. But because, and I told my wife, you saved my life. She said, how? And I said, you asked me to stay, and I stayed, and I didn't perish with those guys over there. But it's it's the good Lord's work. I I don't care what anybody can say and whatnot. I don't think I've ever met an atheist in a foxhole, <laughs> you know. Or or the cargo ramp. All right, yeah, you got that. I was really honored. They did a, a full page on me on the Stars and Stripes, on you know the, the job of the loadmaster stuff. So I have been very blessed. And of course, you know they did a documentary on me also. Mm-hmm. And just this last year, they had a film fest and they showed uh, films of World War Two. A veteran, a Korean War veteran, and they had me as a Vietnam veteran and a Tuskegee Airman. And um, attended by over 1,500 people here at the theater, and it was free. I, I, I'm just a dumb civilian, but I just got to say real quick in the minute or so we got left, I mean, a 1,000 combat sorties, that that's outrageous. Well, I, I'll be honest, we don't keep track of our sorties, but I got a proclamation just before I left there says, let it be known by these presidents that Sergeant James Lopez, on a date of 21 May 1968, has distinguished himself by completing 1,000 successful combat sorties in the C-130B Zerkeries, delivering supplies and equipment to the United States and Allied Forces in the Republic of Vietnam. In view of the operational conditions and the combined environment, this is a remarkable feat in airmanship, worthy of special recognition. The title of Blue Eagle is hereby bestowed to a life member of the 1,000 combat sortie flight of the 773rd Tactical Air Squadron, which was known as the Blue Eagles. So it was it was a pleasure to me. Well, Jim, I tell you what, it's been a real honor and a pleasure to have you join us here on American Warrior Radio today, and uh, you take care of yourself, sir. You too. God bless you, and uh, may you have a very healthy and happy, happy New Year. Thank you. You too. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. This podcast and over 500 others can be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these important stories with your friends and associates. Don't forget, you can also stream us on whatever your favorite streaming platform is. We're on all the major ones, so feel free to check it out. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, as usual, our policies and procedures remain in place. Take care. been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.